This is the Beijing Sessions. I'm your host, Haig Balian. This week, I talked to writer Jonathan Chatwin. Five years ago, he took a long walk through Beijing. Then he wrote a book about it. It's called Long Peace Street. It's out on paperback this week. I'll get to that interview in a minute. First, The Six, the documentary about the Chinese survivors of the Titanic, opens in theaters this weekend across China. If you're in China, go see it. It's really good. My interview last week with the people behind The Six had the most weekly downloads of any episode I've produced so far. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for commenting. I really appreciate it. One last thing before we get to Jonathan. Next week, I'm screening The Man Who Built Cambodia, a documentary I co-produced and co-wrote. It's about Cambodian architect Van Mollivan, and it'll be at Camera Stylo on Friday, April 23 at 7.30 p.m. It's a short film, around 40 minutes long, and I'll be there to do a Q&A after the screening. Matthew Hu Sinu of the Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center and James Welsh, who used to be the managing editor of the Cambodia Daily, will be there too. And I'm really excited to show the film here. It's free. It's at a bar. It'll be relaxed. If you're in Beijing, come join. Okay, here's my interview with writer Jonathan Chatwin. After a visit to China in 1955, Simone de Beauvoir said that in walking the streets of a city, one secures an immediate, irrecusable experience for which no hypothesis about a city, however ingenious, can be a substitute or as instructive. With those words in mind, travel writer and journalist Jonathan Jatwin set out on a 30-kilometer walk along Beijing's Chang'anjie, Long Pi Street, from its western point at the former site of Shogang Iron and Steel, to its eastern terminus, the Sihui East subway stop. The result was a book, Long P Street, that's part history and part travelogue. It was first published in 2019, and now it's also available in paperback. Jonathan Chatwin joins me over Zoom from England. Jonathan, welcome to the Beijing Sessions. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, you frame your book, Long P Street, around a walk you took in Beijing over two days in August, when temperatures here regularly go up to over 30 degrees Celsius. <laughs> we are speaking right now in the middle of April. From my apartment, which is around four kilometers north of Long Peace Street, I'm looking south to the new high rises of Guomao in the city's central business district. It was windy today, so there was no smog. It was also sunny, but the temperatures uh, were in the late teens. In the last two weeks, the trees have blossomed, and I've lost track of how many people I've seen who have stopped to take photos of flowers. In other words, it is Beijing at its best, and it's the perfect day to go for a walk. <laughs> so my first question is, why did you take your walk in August? Why not a few months earlier? Yeah, I think you're right that, that spring and and uh, and possibly autumn are Beijing's uh, best seasons. And I always found it remarkable. There's a, there's a sort of day... Uh, I generally found in Beijing where uh, it's like I live, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm from the UK originally and here the difference between the seasons tend to be very gradual. Whereas in Beijing, I, I remember that you you walk out your apartment one day and suddenly it was spring and it was, you know, about 15 degrees warmer than it had been the day before. And yeah. And so it would have been a great, a great time to go uh, apart from all of that 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 fluff that falls off the the cottonwood poplar trees which i just learned by the way are called catkins yeah and i think there was some sort of campaign where they were i don't understand the, the botany but there was some sort of campaign where they were going to try and plant 
only one species of tree or uh, sorry only one right. is, is that right or only one gender of tree rather maybe or i don't know i don't know how it works but some way of stopping this fluff infusion which uh, happens uh, each year um so yeah spring would be a really good time to go um i tend to have time in the summer that's when i you know, I'd been traveling and, and sort of researching. Um, I wasn't living in China when I did the walk. So I was there um, for, for most of the summer. Um, and I'd kind of am denied about when to do it. And then <laughs> thinking maybe there might be a more sort of, I don't know, sl- slightly less intensely hot day. And that, that day never arrived. So I, as I was, I think I had three days left before I flew back to the UK. I thought, well, it's, it's now or never. So, yeah, it was about 32 degrees, I think, in, in, in British Celsius. So um, that's pretty hot and it's pretty humid uh, as well. So, yeah, I, there's a few moments in the book where I escape into a mall just to get some some air conditioning. And that, that was very gratefully received, I must say. You began your walk at the western end uh, of, of Long P Street. The, the site of Shogang Iron and Steel. And each stop along the way is an opportunity to dip into a part of Beijing's recent history. And the, and the history you tell is not chronological. It's, it's geographic. Um, before you embarked on the walk, did you have an idea of what parts of that history you wanted to highlight? Or how much did the walk itself influence that part of the book? That's a good question. I think, to be honest with you, I knew the street pretty well by the time I did the walk. Um, so I had kind of mapped out in my head some of the stories that I wanted to tell. Um, I think where I found where I found it very easy, there were a number of sites along it which lent themselves to exploring some perhaps lesser lesser known aspects of the history or exploring. Uh, kind of more personal stories, so places like Baba Shan Revolutionary Cemetery, which is where a lot of the so-called martyrs of the revolution are uh, interred, buried. Um, that was a very easy place to write about in lots of ways um, because it seemed to epitomise uh, something quite interesting about the the hierarchical nature of the revolution in that it's a hill uh, in which the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party who are buried there sit atop the hill in these kind of quite elaborate marble um tombs um and so there's lots of sort of you know to me i'd already kind of penciled those bits in the observatory near jangleman which again to me uh, was quite resonant i think where i found it um interesting i suppose to kind of pick away some of the layers were areas that that were newer um where there was a less obvious kind of historical hook um to explore i mean as you get further east the the this you know outside the old city walls to the east there wasn't very much um really of, of historical significance in that area uh, it was a lot of farmland um uh, so trying to dig away and try and find stories to tell from those areas was was interesting and, and a bit more challenging perhaps um but I tried to focus it by thinking, first of all, about a sort of specific time period. So it, ten, it tells broadly the story of modern China. So from, from the end of uh, the Qing dynasty in 1912 through to the present day of the book. Um, and I tried to um, not overstate my claim to the city or its history. I'm not a Beijing. Um, so, yeah, sometimes there was a bit more of a challenge at kind of, or I had to think a bit more laterally about how to approach the history. You, you read in your book that beginning in the 1950s, Long Peace Street was remade as a symbol. How was it remade as a symbol? 
Well, it was never really a particularly significant thoroughfare um, going back to the sort of old imperial days uh, where it was, uh, you know, two ends of a street coming off Tiananmen Square, as we call it now, although you know, back in the old imperial city, it, was, it wasn't a square, it was a sort of T-shaped processional walk with a gate in the middle and, and, and walls around. And when the CCP took over uh, China in, in, in October 1949 that's a moment where they have to start thinking about how to actually rule and run a country which you know up until that point they had been revolutionaries um and the, the job of managing uh, you know a hugely diverse and and uh, geographically expansive country like china you know has de- defeated a lot of people and it wasn't their strong suit you know they they didn't have necessarily those skills of administration so they looked to the north, they looked to Russia and um, Soviet advisors to help them to start to think about the mechanics of, of of rule. So the Beijing that you see today, in a in a, in a lot of respects, is um, a consequence of that first decade where the Soviet advisors were um, leaned on quite heavily in terms of thinking about what a socialist capital should look like, and lots of inspiration drawn from. Uh, from Moscow as well. Uh, and, and today is a kind of weird mix of a little bit of the old imperial city, a little bit of the socialist realist 1950s uh, and, and 60s stuff, and then obviously the modern element of the city you were describing in, in your introduction. So Chang'anjie, uh, Long Peace Street, which is my um, slightly crude translation of the, of the name of the street, it becomes designed and built to, um, first of all, showcase a number of the so-called 10 great buildings, which are built for the 1959 anniversary of CCP rule. So the 10 year, the 10 year anniversary. And these include, so there's a military museum, which is this kind of weird Stalinist wedding cake with a spire and a star on the top. The Great Hall of the People, which is sort of China's parliament, if you like. Beijing Railway Station. These are all huge um, showpiece buildings that were designed and built along Tangantie. And the road itself was was widened and straightened, partly to allow for the parades that happen along it. And the other possibly apocryphal story is that they they remade Chang'antie uh, into this very broad, very straight road, partly because they wanted to be able to land uh, an aeroplane on it if things went wrong and they needed to make a quick getaway from Beijing. So, I mean, that's something that I've never been able to find a reliable source for, but it sort of, it does have, you know, you, you can believe it that I think now it's much harder to understand how tenuous the grip on power must have seemed in the 19. 19- 1949 and the, and the first decade, given how difficult the, the, the transition had been from the imperial era ending in 1912 to then, you know, there have been lots of people who tried to rule China and, and struggled. Um, so, yeah, the road becomes sort of symbolic of a lot of the aspirations that the, that the new leadership have for uh, the country and, and the buildings along it. Uh, kind of totemic of, of some of those ideas. Um, just one final thing on it is that it's a deliberate subversion of the old imperial pattern. So the imperial uh, pattern was a north to south axis, which was accorded the greatest importance. And Chang'anxie is, is east to west. So it's a kind of deliberate inversion of that. One of my favorite details in the book is, is that you kept a pack of cigarettes with you in Beijing as a source of currency. <laughs> and I, th- I thought that was a really good tip. Oh, what could you and what did you use cigarettes as currency for? <laughs> 
Well, I always, I mean, I think that it's changed when I, when I lived there um, and I traveled quite a lot by myself. And I, I mean, I still do when I go back, it tends to be that I'm, I'm on my own. Um, and in, in those days, you know, everybody smoked in the restaurants and I, that, that started to change when I, when I left. I mean, I don't smoke now at all. And it probably didn't do my lungs much good given I lived in Beijing at the time where the pollution was. I was thinking at, the same thing. Yeah, horrific. So I probably shaved a good, good few years of my life by doing that. But I found that, um, yeah, when you're traveling by yourself a lot, um, it was quite a useful way of striking up conversation. Um, yeah, either <laughs> so very often Chinese men would would give you cigarettes, or you know, or you could ask for a light, and that just seemed a, a useful way of of sparking up conversation in there. I'm very wary. In the book, I try and stay away from kind of fox poppy interactions with people because I think that the best, you know, there's some wonderful long form writing on 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 China, which which deals with how Chinese people feel. Those people have spent years and years developing relationships and have a really nuanced understanding, speak amazing Chinese as well. And I'm very wary of the sort of journalistic approach to China, which is, you know, walk up to a random member of the Chinese public and ask them how they feel about, you know, X, Y or Z. And, it, you know, it's the same in the UK. If you walk up to a random member of the public, ask them, ask them what they think about Boris Johnson or Brexit, you know, you're going to get an answer that is a very limited use as a data point. So I tended to try and stay away from that. But yeah, the, 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 the smoking thing, and the other thing that I found, which um, Michael Meyer in one of his books talks about, that if you ever, if you just stop in China, if you just, you know, if you're walking somewhere or you're traveling somewhere and you just stop, you give it a few minutes and, and someone will approach you and start a conversation with you in my experience uh, pa- perhaps that's changed a bit over the last few years but certainly when i was traveling yeah that that was quite an effective technique if you yeah if you wanted a bit of a bit of company uh, you know and I've, I've taken some really long trips by myself in china and, and uh, yeah it's not so much that i'm i'm mining these people for uh, for journalistic nuggets of information but just that it's nice to make a human connection when you're when you're taking those trips in the book we, we get glimpses of, of who you are. We know that you're English, that sometimes you smoke cigarettes and apparently you don't anymore, um, <laughs> that your appearance on those two days of, of your walk, and these are your words, were, you were somewhat disheveled and overheated. Um, we can, we can <laughs> feel your sadness over a city that was lost and a city that, that could have been. But as a, as a character mm. in the book, we get a sort of a surface level sketch of you as a, as a character right um how Mm. did you decide just how much of yourself you wanted to expose in this book that's a good question i i come from a background so my um academic background is in the study of of travel writing um and i wrote a book about the british travel writer and novelist bruce chatwin and he was famous for um policing his persona um and there's a famous uh, conversation recorded between him and, and the travel writer Paul Theroux, um, where Paul Theroux basically takes him to task for not giving more details of, of how he got from place to place, for example, you know, some of the more mundane details. And Bruce Chowen famously told him, I, d- I, don't, I don't believe in coming clean, you know, I don't believe in revealing that stuff. Um, I don't think I would go that far, but I, I, I very much wanted to avoid. I guess partly I just don't think I'm that interesting um, and I wanted to avoid trying to sort of force a, a personal narrative um, out of out of the walk 
um, I think I think where that can work really well in travel writing is if the journey itself is um, some sort of ordeal or some sort of personal um, journey. I think about something like Peter Mattison's The Snow Leopard, which is a wonderful travel book, um, uh, and he's very much present in that. And it's but it's a book about him and an experience he's going through. So yeah, it was pretty conscious to 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 keep that at a, at a minimum. I wanted the city and its history to sort of be the main character, if you like, of the book. Chinese history to an outsider, it, it might seem, well, it, it might seem huge. And, and as I was reading your book, I thought, well, this is a really good primer because you dip into these stories and you dip into these characters. And one of the things I liked, I liked about your book was that, you know, you, you brought this history down to a, sta- to a scale that I could relate with. Um, was, that, was that a goal? Um, yeah, I think uh, it's really tricky when you when you're dealing with China full stop to, to set boundaries for a piece of work, uh, whether that's an article or a, you know, a book like mine, um, that make it manageable, not just for you, but f- for the reader as well. And I wanted to, it to be a book that had uh, that appealed to a general readership. Um, but striking that balance is really difficult because, um, you know, you're, you're, you're always conscious of the fact that you're treading, you know, <laughs> in, in areas where there are scholars who've spent their whole lives studying that one specific aspect of Chinese history. And so trying to trying to make it accessible without losing all the nuance was something that I I did give a lot of thought to. I'm not, you know, I don't think it was I was completely successful in, in doing that. But I wanted I, you know, in a way it was partly about my journey to some sort of level of understanding. You know, I'm not an historian. And when I came to China, I was fascinated by some of the questions, really that question, which I think, I suppose, it sounds very simple, but, you know, I would, when I first moved to China, I was kind of preoccupied with this sense of, well, like, how did, how did it, how did the country get to where it is today? What were the different forces acting on Chinese history? How did they all conspire to lead to the country that you get today? And, um, I'm not suggesting that my book answers that question, but I still think that's probably the primary motivating question that I am interested in. I suppose now perhaps the question is is more, where is it going again? I think that perhaps wasn't quite as present for me when I first lived in China. So you've, you you have almost five years of distance now from the walk and a little less distance from from writing the book. As you were preparing the paperback, what did you notice had changed the most in Beijing since your walk in 2016? I wrote a preface for the new book. And so I thought quite a bit about that question. At the end of the book, I go back to um, the starting point of the walk, which was Shogun Iron and Steel. And in a way, that was quite a nice way of reflecting on the way Beijing had changed because I had been there a number of years before as well. So I think I first went in 2012, maybe, to Shogun, uh, but at which point it was still uh, pretty much intact. This huge iron and steel works went home to 200,000 people. And then by the time I started my walk in 2016, um, much of it had been demolished and there were tentative plans as to what they were going to do with it, but no, no real decision had been made and then when I went back again I guess maybe it was 2018 I can't quite remember now it had been given over as the headquarters of the uh, Winter Olympics in 2022 so yeah I think that's quite a good kind of um, metaphor for some of the things that had changed the fact that when I went back expecting really this 
whole site to be raised you know new buildings in its place actually what they had done is repurpose some of the some of the old industrial architecture you know another change uh that that i guess i noticed when i was reading your book i mean at one point you take an illegal taxi and and i thought well wow i, I would never take an illegal <laughs> taxi why would i do that there's there's didi you know and didi is is like uber it's it's so cheap and, and more importantly just it requires this minimum amount of interaction. I, you don't need to know Chinese at all, yeah. and it's so easy to get around. I thought, wow, that 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 yeah. has just probably changed everything here too. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I used to take them all, all the time when I lived there. Um, yeah, they were like a gaggle of them that, that hang up outside my uh, where my apartment was, and probably because I lived there. But uh, and you know, I'd come out if I and yeah, I just needed to go somewhere. I, yeah, you know, I would I would always take them, but but yeah, I mean that's that's changed entirely now. But it was good for my Chinese practice. I think that's the thing that um, you you miss. I think actually a lot. And you know, my friends who still live in Beijing, you know, we I used to go out and eat in a restaurant pretty much every night. Uh, and you know, all my friends who who live there now, they stay in their houses and and get delivery. You know, and and I think that the yeah the gig economy has changed the relationship that you have with the city pretty substantially. Long P Street was published in 2019. So it's been out in the world for a little while. Um, and so there's a lot of reviews out there. And were there any reactions from that time that surprised you? Oh, I should, I should say there were, there were very positive reviews. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, you know, I am um, from people that I that I really admired. And, and that was that was really, really nice. I, I think the reactions that I've really been most pleased to see have been people who've talked about how it has kind of um, done what I think travel writing should do, which is allow you to spend a little bit of time somewhere that you're not familiar with um, and, and, and take somebody out of their, you know, their, their, their current surroundings. A few people have mentioned who would moved away from Beijing, a uh, sort of sense of homesickness <laughs> that they experienced in reading it. And I think I hadn't realised at the time, but that was a bit of a recurring theme in some of the reviews was this sense that I had clearly expressed of a kind of uh, nostalgia for um, what had been lost. Yeah, one of the reviews talks about you know being a book about ghosts, which actually when I reread it, I thought that that was that was quite an astute kind of reflection because it is about a lot of the walk is looking at well what used to be here or what stories you know what people kind of had some significant moment at, at this particular junction or or site. Jonathan, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great to chat. Thank you to Jonathan Chatwin. His book is Long Peace Street. And watch for the Amazon affiliate link in the show notes. Next week, I'm going to try something a little different. I'm going to produce a report from a crypto art exhibition I went to. Uh, I'll talk to you then. <laughs>